It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Wednesday morning, the 12th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The number of new confirmed cases of coronavirus every day is simply staggering. If only those numbers being officially recorded were actually correct. But instead of it being 20,000 new cases a day or thereabouts every day, the real figure is probably more like 70,000 cases a day. 70,000 new cases every single day. The Chief Medical Officer, Dr Tony Houlihan, said yesterday he believed there were 500,000 new cases just last week alone. So imagine if each person confirmed to have COVID has three close contacts, suddenly that's one and a half million people. Imagine if each person with COVID has 10 close contacts. Straight away, you're talking about 5 million people. In the course of a week, everyone in the country becomes a confirmed case or a close contact. It's not sustainable, or at least that appears said to be the view of uh, the government. Let's hear more about uh, the changes that are to go to Cabinet today. Damien English, Minister of State for Business, Employment and Retail, joins us. Good morning to you, Minister, and thanks indeed for joining us. We're getting to a stage where nobody would be able to get to work, so something needs to be done, but these are big decisions. Good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on. Uh, and, and you're right, Michael, they are big decisions, uh, and like any decision in relation to the to COVID-19 for the last two years, they are big decisions that have big impacts uh, on families, on businesses, on jobs, and jobs, and society in general. So they, they are always based as best we possibly can on evidence, on data, and, you know, the, the trending, uh, what, what's happening with the trends of the, of the virus. And you referenced the, 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 the contract tracing and the testing. I mean, in, in any country, that can only capture uh, a certain amount of testing. That's been away since the start of the last two years. It doesn't always catch all the positive cases. So that's why we do have a lot of modelling and a lot of, lot, of, lot of mathematicians involved with an effort to work out what, what we think is really happening in society with the variant in Ireland and other countries as well. So the changes today are, are, are based on practical and pragmatic decisions around the society has to function and the country has to function. And as follows advice from the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, uh, which they updated their guidance uh, last week, and the government asked an effort to relook at the close contact advice and the isolation advice and quarantine advice for those with, with COVID and confirmed cases of COVID as well because you have to be able to you know, um, 
growing your country, uh, public services, uh, essential services, businesses have to stay open as well as best we possibly can. And well, that's you, can't, why you can't get a haircut or <laughs> buy a loaf of bread at certain times of the day because there aren't people to staff the shops or the hairdressers. Correct, Michael. There's only yeah. the amount of pressure out there. Now, I want to say, I mean, I, I, I'm involved in the retail forum. I chair that. Um, we have a retail unit in the department. And from a retail point of view, from a food point of view, we're constantly engaging with all our companies there and supply chains uh, are okay at the moment. They're under mm. awful lot of pressure and people do can see it delays in some days when the child is being restocked because there's so much pressure with staff and the supply chain and the goods coming in. But we are confident that the, that the supplies are there. A small delay and stocking them here. Mm. But there's no, there's no fear there. No well, that's, that's it. Get, getting your bread in the morning rather than this evening if it was more convenient for you is one thing. The same thing with waiting a, a week or two to get a haircut is another thing. But not being able to see your doctor, uh, not being able uh, to go to hospital in an ambulance uh, because the paramedics are out, not being treated in hospital because the nurses are out or the doctors are out and so on uh, becomes all the more serious and the same applies then to the firefighters uh, the guards and all of the frontline services Yeah and that was, that's exactly what the, the, the European Centre for Prevention has told said last week based on you know that you have to recognise that society has to function and you need to have essential services so when you face a high or extreme pressure on your healthcare systems, on your public services, on your essential businesses, you have to make some changes, some practical changes uh, in relation to isolation, quarantine, and the close contacts. And that's what NEFA have reviewed that advice, mm. reviewed that guidance the last couple of days. They've made their recommendations to the Minister for Health. They'll go to Cabinet today. And if, 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 if Cabinet implement them, what will happen is at the moment, if you're a close contact uh, and, and you've been boosted, you, you have to isolate for five days or 10 days if you haven't been. Uh, that will change back down to, to, to no days of isolation if you've been boosted, but it will be advised more than likely by presuming Cabinet adopts this in relation to what masks to wear, and again, common sense, mm. that if you're showing symptoms, of course, you isolate. Is, is, that the advice of, is that the actual advice of the ECDC? Because... Uh, there's a difference between going to work and not isolating altogether. Uh, there uh, is a talk that perhaps uh, the advice is that people should get a, a derogation uh, under those circumstances, uh, that if they don't have symptoms and they have a booster, they can go to work because we need to keep the country running. But they should I- isolate otherwise. Yeah, so the, so the ECDC have given forward a range of options uh, for different scenarios depending on the, on the level of the, the variant in your country and the number of cases and where you're at. And they've also said, I mean, this is at the moment Europe is the epicentre for this for Omicron and it's and more than likely one or two people will get it and that's what they're saying. So they're also being pragmatic and being realistic of, of a situation where there's that. While the number of the cases are extremely high, it's not resulting in the same effect of people being extremely sick and ending up in, in hospital for a long time or an ICU bed compared to where we would have been uh, a year ago or two years ago when yeah. this first happened. But so, so, some are. You do have to. Mm-hmm. Some are, Mike, yeah. absolutely. And and it's, you don't want, you'd rather not get it's, this. It's a smaller, much smaller percentage, but uh, out of a much bigger pool. Uh, so there is still reason for concern about public health and indeed serious and severe illness uh, and death. Absolutely. So yeah. every decision is made very carefully and based on the evidence and the range of advice and guidance put forward by the NCDC. And NEFA put a lot of effort into this. They, you know, they were asked by government last week to look at this because we yeah. could see the pressure coming through the system. But they didn't just make a quick decision. They spent the last week analysing this, going through the trends and trying to get the advice right. And Michael, we've had numerous conversations yeah. here at all times. You're, you're, everybody's doing their best to make the right decision to get the best advice 
but also uh, sometimes you have to make some changes because you do have to run a country and people have to be able to provide the health service, public services, be it home care, yeah. health care, all that, and, and in relation to getting goods and supplies as well. So we think uh, the recommendations coming forward to me uh, are the best balance of that, mm. uh, and hopefully we will get that right. But if you've no symptoms uh, and uh, you've had a, a booster, does that mean that you should go to work uh, and that if you want to afterwards you could go for a, a pint in somewhere else then for a meal and onto the cinema? Well, two things, Michael. Again, people are still asked to, to use their common sense and to follow all the all the, all the guidance mm. and advice. So you're asked to minimise your, your movements. Of course, that is the case. But yes, pubs, restaurants are open until 8 o'clock, so are cinemas. Uh, you can do that. Many people have made the wise decision to really limit uh, and, and to reduce their mm. movements and their contacts. And that, that does pay off in many cases because, as you said, this can travel quite fast through contacts. People are are asked if they're not essentially to work from home. That's there and has been there since, since back in December or even November. That's it. So naturally, it's still common sense here. But if you're boosted uh, and you have no symptoms uh, and you, uh, you you are uh, you are encouraged to uh, you know mm. if you have to go to work to go to work if it's if it's essential if you can't work from home. But you are very clearly the advice will will probably follow on today in relation to what masks to wear uh, and and again if you show symptoms to take antigen tests as well, to protect yourself and others around you. So there'll be other guidance with this. Again, following on from the advice of Europe, not just to say no need to be, if you're close contact, no need to isolate. It comes with recommendations if you're going to move around it must make be, sure it must be one of the most difficult decisions uh, for the government uh, to make because it, it really does seem to be a case of damned if you do and damned if you don't uh, I mean you can't go on the way things are because everybody would have to stay at home uh, and that would be but, 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 ridiculous but, 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 but uh, on the other hand this this is a decision that will in effect uh, allow this virus to rip through society but there's two things, Michael, and again, these changes are based on more data uh, of the last couple of weeks watching this variant going through our countries, and uh, and it's not, it doesn't seem to be yet, and the scientific evidence is not all there yet, but it doesn't seem to be as severe as previous variants. So you will remember, Michael, everyone does, that at different stages over the last couple of years, we've had more severe lockdowns with great restrictions where nobody could go to work and services were massively and greatly affected and the knock-on effect that for everybody. And that was appropriate at those times because of the different variants and we were still learning about COVID-19. You're at a stage now because of the vaccination programme and the success of that, mm. the booster programme now, over two and a half million people boosted. People's learning in general and their approach to dealing with COVID-19 and the variant were in a much better place. This variant is, does not seem to be as severe. So we can relax these restrictions uh, and uh, to enable the country to function okay. and for essential services to continue. But we, there's still a lot of restrictions in place and a lot of, a lot of businesses are greatly affected. If you're in the, the play and leisure indoor sector, indoor activity sector, you're still greatly affected. If you're hospitality, mm. entertainment, mm. massively affected. A lot of people's livelihoods, jobs, businesses. So there's a lot of restrictions still there and in relation to advice and guidance and so on. So Talk to us about PCR tests, if you would, Minister, because they're very difficult to get, which is why the figures are, are far lower, I gather, than the actual number of cases uh, that uh, could be confirmed every day. If it was possible to test so many people, it's obviously not possible. Uh, but there is to be change in respect of that. And if you're self-testing, if you do an antigen test, uh, you'll be able to register that as a confirmed case. Is that right? 
Yeah, so that, that's my understanding is, and again, I haven't seen the, the exact wording of the letter to, to Stephen Minister Donnelly that will go to Cabinet today. But just to be clear, at, 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 at most times over the last two years, we built the capacity up to be able to do 100,000 PCR tests a week, which up until now was sufficient to, to manage this. That's now moved up to 300,000 cases a week and they mm-hmm. need to do that. Mm-hmm. And that's still enough. No, and I think that's massive, the yeah. Oh, it's absolutely Every, massive, every yeah. country yeah, is yeah, the same. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like, yeah. you couldn't keep ahead of this with no. the testing. Mm. Like anybody could. We but have so, to be realistic. There's no doubt about again, that. Yes, yes. So, so there are some realistic changes mm-hmm. being made and recommended. And, and the advice would be that when, 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 if Cabinet agree today, which I suspect they mm. probably will, the antigen positive test results will be enough to record their COVID case. The HSE have to change mm. their, their IT systems to allow you to record that. Yeah. And then the advice of isolation and all that goes along with that as well. So, I'm reading that will be only for people up to the age of 39. But if you qualify for this and you test positive with an antigen test yourself, you can record it on the HSE website. Does that mean then that you'd be entitled to a COVID cert? My understanding is that you will, and that will right. be clarified when it's appropriate today. Are you worried about that? Are you worried about people letting on that they had a positive test to get a COVID cert so that yeah, they so could go into the so pub? So, so two things there, Michael. Just to, to be clear, that, that piece, when if Cabinet agree that, then will be very well communicated to everybody and the responsibilities that goes with that mm. and the process to do that. It won't be just, I'm sure there's a mechanism. Well, there's no point in COVID. There's no point in having COVID certs at that stage, is there? So, so, Michael, just to be clear, uh, I'm sure the next couple of days, and I know this has been worked on before as well, mm. but before this is in place, every measure will be done to try to make sure that it's it's a, it's not open to, to easily fraud and so on. But like, but you're, 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 you're self-declaring. You're saying, I have a positive antigen test. Yeah. Nobody, nobody is going to verify that. Uh, there's no point. I mean, you understand, uh, I'm no, sure, no, no, the no, concern. No, 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 Michael, and, and, and to be fair, I think you'll understand, I can't give you the answer yet. Yeah, because yeah. Mm. The Cabinet will announce that and the measures to go in place to protect that system. But to be fair, Michael, at all times over the last two years, we have asked the Irish people to work with us on this and be responsible. Of course, you and I know there's a percentage in any society that won't follow the rules, mm. will play the game, but the majority will do what's right for themselves and their families. Well, we are, only, we are only talking about a small minority who uh, I think government has been saying has been causing a lot of problems for the country, that uh, less than 5%, probably about 2%, who won't get vaccinated. Some people who can't, but uh, those who won't get vaccinated, who might just decide it would be funny that they could go to the pub uh, by filling out a, a form. And you'd have to imagine, uh, given some of the behaviour that we've seen in the course of the last two years, that that's quite probable. It's uh, certainly possible. Uh, I, I would think that it's quite probable. Yeah, uh, but if that's, if that's the case, uh, should we not just open the pubs, uh, open the restaurants, uh, get back to normal and let it rip? Uh, because that seems to be the case, that we don't have much choice in this. Mm. So the, the two things there, Michael, again, those people who choose for whatever reason, uh, I do say, yeah, those who choose not to, as opposed to those who can't, it's probably less than 2%. Because when I mean, we are at this stage, practically, I'd say, at 96%. Mm-hmm. There's a number of people, even this week, there's a few thousand people got their first dose. So there's still, as of today, people coming forward and getting their first dose and their second dose. I think there's 3,000 in the last week got their first dose. Something like another two or 3,000 got their second dose of the vaccine. So there's still people deciding to get this. There's some out there then who can't for whatever reason, but there's a percentage who won't. Uh, and, 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 and you're right, they, they are putting themselves at danger, first of all, as well as those around them. And we've seen many people, uh, you know, around the world who chose, for whatever reasons, not to get a vaccine, took a very different approach on it. And I know people that have now passed away because they made that choice. Mm. So it's not a wise choice. 
but people are making that choice. We give all the advice and guidance and encouragement and everything we can do to encourage people to do that. And I think the advice is there for, for people of all ages. Um, you're asked then, should we reopen pubs and restaurants and, and play centres and so on? That's, that'll be looked at now over the next couple of weeks. We will be removing restrictions uh, as, as, as we peak with this variant and it comes back down during January, early February. And I hope, and again, the Thomas has said this yesterday, we hope to be in a strong position to, re, to, to start removing restrictions in, into February because we want to get society fully opened and all those businesses who are under immense pressure back trading. Yes, there are business supports there to help them survive these difficult times, but they want to be open and they want to be implying their staff. We want to be creating jobs and we want to get back there. Mm. But we have to just get through the peak of this variant and it is going right through society. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Every knows somebody. and Every has a neighbour now who has it. But also between those who are getting COVID and those who are boosted with a vaccine over two and a half million, we should be in a strong place come February to be able to reopen society in a careful manner. But again, we'll mm. do that in conjunction with the public health advice that we've done over the last two years. Minister, can I ask you two questions that are impossible to answer or uh, two que- questions about two sectors, uh, which I think are very difficult to answer, if not impossible to answer, uh, given uh, the pressure that there has been on everything in this country uh, as a result of COVID and the pandemic and the lockdowns and what that has done uh, to employment and the pressure on jobs. How is it that Enterprise Ireland created 12,000 jobs last year, a record number of jobs. Uh, That's the first uh, sector. The second then is the export of Irish food and drink, Bordbia, recording record highs last year. Uh, It seems remarkable, does it not? Yeah, but two two things there, Michael, and it is remarkable, and they're fabulous results, and they're a great positive uh, injection of positivity in January when we're we're still in a difficult time. Compared to when we had a recession here and the financial crisis, we were looking at seven or eight long years to recover. We, as a government, have predicted about a year ago that we expected to recover quite quickly after COVID, and hopefully through job, uh, job growth and employment growth and business growth and sales, that we would be able to recover and close the gap with the public finances within two years. Unemployment was down to about 7% before this wave hit us in December. So again, we were ahead of our own targets. We thought it would be out of 10 or 11%. So there is a great opportunity here for this country to recover quickly. But we have to be clear here. There's different sectors. In the first year of COVID, if you talk about enterprise Ireland companies, about a third of them grew their business. A third stayed the same and a third had losses and were under immense pressure. If you look at society beyond Enterprise Ireland as well, there are some sectors, again, the indoor activity, leisure sector, hospitality, entertainment, and others around that, under immense pressure to survive. But when they're let open and fully allowed open, you know, there in the autumn, their business was returning and returning quite quickly as well. So if we can get through this stage and get society fully open and those businesses up and running again, with the ongoing supports they've had for the last two years, continued in the right way, they will recover as well. So there, there was a lot of activity in this country and you're asking why is that? And I'm going to answer to Michael and the truth of it is we came into COVID in a strong position as a country. We Our public finances were in good order. We had long-term plans put in place uh, for this country over the next 10 or 15 years to future-proof it in relation to job creation and investment. Capital investment was over 11 billion a year compared to where if you compare 10 years ago it was less than a billion just from the state capital investment. So there was a lot of activity mm. happening, a lot of long-term plans Yes, COVID hit them hard, even when it comes to housing. Housing was beginning to go right. COVID walloped it and it, and it stopped again. But they're all back up and running and that money has been spent and generating activity and jobs. So if we can get through the public health measures and save the lives we have to save, 
over the you know for the last two years and the next couple next month or so till we get through this, we will uh, as a country I believe, and these figures from Enterprise Ireland would show that we can rebound quite quickly. Mm. It doesn't mean there won't be some companies under severe pressure and will need assistance. And sadly, we might still see some job losses into the future. There's no one denying that. But there's a lot of opportunity out there, and we are prepared. And my department, the Department of Enterprise Trade and Employment, with our agencies like Enterprise Ireland, like IDA, like our local LEO office, local enterprise office, they're all doing extremely well supporting companies. But also, the taxpayer has stepped up here with a lot of money through government and through other supports Mm. out to businesses to keep businesses open and keep... Well, thank goodness. Uh, I mean, they really are remarkable results uh, and I don't think anybody can argue with uh, that. Uh, just uh, before you leave us, uh, Minister, uh, we're to get a, a double bank holiday around St. Patrick's Day with the new bank holiday on St. Bridget's Day on the 1st of February, I believe. These, that decision's not made yet, Michael. There is an intention uh, and a hope that there, that there would may, may be additional bank holiday in this country because we've, we've a lot less compared to other European countries as well. To, to commemorate and, and all those who've lost their lives sadly during COVID and those who have, who've stepped up at the front line in our health services and retail, food production, many other sectors who came forward and, and, and were able to assist this country during COVID. So okay. there will be, you know, that, that's appropriate to have that once a year when we're through this. Um, are we in a position to have it this year? That's a decision the government has mm-hmm. to make. We're still dealing with it, so it's hard to, you know, to, it's meant to be after COVID. COVID is still here, so the cabinet will make that decision when that's implemented. Uh, okay. St. Bridget's Day expected, uh, and uh, we'll come back to you about one in July and one in September in due course, but we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you for joining us this morning. That's uh, Minister of State for Business and Employment and Retail, Finnegale TD for Midwest, Damien English. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, as you've been hearing, uh, the Cabinet uh, meets today and it has a, a busy agenda. Adam Higgins is political correspondent with uh, the Irish Sun and on the line with us. Good morning to you, Adam, and thanks uh, for joining us. Obviously, these rules on isolation uh, will be top of the agenda, but it is a, a busy agenda and there are other items that the government will be looking at today. There are indeed, yeah, it's a busy agenda the week before the dollar turns and there's a lot of um, things to get done. Two other big uh, measures that are coming before the Cabinet today, other than outside of the COVID realm, is one is the birth and information tracing bill and the second is the online safety and media regulation bill. Two massive pieces of legislation coming beside the the Cabinet today. And they'll be watched very closely in particular uh, by people who are very close to this story. Anybody who's been adopted will be very anxious to see what uh, is in the small print of this bill. Uh, if you've been adopted, you'll have the right to see your birth cert, apparently. Yes, so the the aim of this legislation, which has been much talked about over the past year, and it comes on the year to the day after the Commission of Invis- Investigation published their report on the, the mother and baby's homes, which we talked about last year. So the aim of this um, bill is to allow uh, adopted people to have access to records and their birth certs and it's kind of enshrining in law the importance of knowing your origins. Okay and the online safety and media regulation bill will of course be of interest to radio stations and to television stations but uh, more so I, I think uh, to people who advocate on behalf of children because this will have a, a lot to do with policing the internet. Yes, one big part of this legislation, and it's an enormous uh, piece of legislation, it runs for pages and pages and pages, but one one key part of it that would be interest to your listeners is the creation of an online safety commissioner. Now, this person, who we expect would be hired um, within months after the bill is enacted, is 
the job is to police social media companies and how they deal with harmful content. So that's the likes of cyberbullying, content promoting self-harm, eating disorders, that sort of stuff that we've seen in the news. And the commissioner will be given the power to, um, if companies don't comply with um, what they need to do to in order to make their website safe and their and their social media platform safe, they they will be able to hit them with fines of 20 million or 10% of their turnover, which is obviously huge numbers when it comes to companies like uh, Facebook and Twitter and companies like that. All right. Uh, And I I suppose when it comes uh, to the bill on adoption, people will be given information whether they'll be able to contact uh, people from the early parts of uh, their lives or or not uh, will be of particular interest and what advice they may be given by social workers. Uh, And then when it comes uh, to the Internet policing, uh, this online commissioner, uh, there will be questions over how much teeth the commissioner has and how much power uh, they will have in regulating what's happening on the internet. Yes, so we're firstly on the, on the birth and information tracing um, legislation. This was triggered obviously by the, the Mother and Babies Homes report and it's going to create a new agency that will help people through this process. So there is a lot of nuts and bolts that will be fleshed out at a press conference which I'm actually going to head off to straight away after I finish speaking with you guys. But then another thing that is raised about is the GDPR issues around this. So it'll be interesting to see how the Minister has walked around that. Then on the, the media bill, um, yeah, the teeth of the Commissioner is, is a big one uh, that I know a lot of politicians who worked on the committee stage of this legislation are anxious to see how and and to what level will the commissioner be able to um, sanction these uh, websites and how and how in depth will their investigations be able to be because obviously the the commissioner can ask the sites look you need to do this that and the other but finding out that they're not doing and how do they find that out is going to be key to policing them and, and imposing these fines if they need to be imposed so it'll be interesting to see the real teeth that the Commissioner has given in in the legislation. Okay, well, two very important pieces of law uh, going before the Cabinet, as you say. Uh, There'll be press conferences and a lot more detail through the day. We leave there for the moment. Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the programme. As always, Adam Higgins, political correspondent with The Irish Sun. Michael Reed on LMFM. How are we going to cut greenhouse emissions uh, in half uh, by 2030 or to eliminate them altogether by 2050 for that matter? Well, that's uh, something that's uh, being explored over the course of three days. Three days that started yesterday by the Environment uh, Committee, the Oireachtas Environment and Climate Action Committee. It's heard, it heard yesterday from the Climate Change Advisory Council uh, because the there's a carrot and sticker approach to this. The carrot is uh, that we all take some responsibility and do our best uh, in terms of uh, the decisions we make. And then there's the stick, which is in the way of making it very expensive us to continue to destroy the planet, if you like, through carbon budgets. Uh, but of course, uh, there are calls for this to be done fairly, or what they call just transition. And this is something uh, that the committee heard about uh, yesterday. Uh, and uh, we'll hear now from Timmy Dooley, who's Fianna Fáil Senator in Clare and spokesperson on Climate Action Communications Network and Transport. And a very good morning to you, Senator Dooley, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. There's going to be a lot of change as a result of the actions that we take. Can it be done fairly, I think, is a fundamental question. Yes, thanks, Michael. Well, well, that's going to be the challenge to all of us, to policy makers, to decision makers, to legislators, 
um, to various different sectors within industry and really down to every individual as well. Um, it has to be done fairly. The reality is that the earth is warming. Uh, we all know that. Um, I think for probably the last 10 years, uh, you've seen a very significant shift in public attitude towards the notion of climate change. If you were talking to people about climate change and the necessity to decarbonize our economy 15 years ago, um, I think you'd only find a very small number of academics um, and some environmentalists uh, that would feel that it was the threat that we broadly accept it is today. And we have seen, I suppose, the um, the effects of climate change, mm. even though it's not fully defined as such yet, but we have seen very significant changes in our weather patterns uh, in a very short period of time now. Yeah. Well, walking around yeah. in a T-shirt yeah. in November, yeah. for example, is a, a very obvious one, or people up to their knees in their kitchen uh, because of flooding is another one. Yeah. and you talk to... Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, then, you will have a certain kind of climate change denier who will say, I will look at it in 1937, and I'm just using <laughs> that as an example, yeah, yeah. there was snow in May and something else happened in November. And for sure, there are what might be referred to as one-off events that happen over 100 years or whatever. But the consistency uh, of the change mm. is what's really making people look up. The, the the amount of flood events that are taking place, as you identified people walking around in uh, the early part of December uh, at, at you know, 12, 13 degrees when people were considering buying their, their winter woolies and their scarves. Um, but yet you had temperatures that were more akin to what you would have in springtime. Yeah. So, so, so so, that has changed. And, and people are seeing the implications of that. It's not just about having nice weather at Christmas. Mm. It's seeing significant flooding, which we saw in Wexford. Um, it's significant coastal flooding, which we have seen along the western seaboard. It's the number of storms. And, and that's, that's, kind, that's kind of the easy bit, isn't it? Because that's the, the easy bit, the, because the, that's happening like this yeah. in Ireland. And the, the hard bit is preparing uh, to change the way we think and the way we act. Uh, and your job as a committee is to advise the government on how to prepare for that. And if you take one example, uh, electric cars, uh, and you talk about a just transition and doing that fairly, not everybody will be able to afford an electric car. But let's say they were for a second. Uh, how are we going to maintain those cars? This is a point that Patricia King uh, of ICTU, the General Secretary of the Irish Congress of Trade <coughs> Unions, was making yesterday, because jobs will be won and jobs will be lost uh, but if we look at the mechanics in the country at the moment they're all uh, skilled at repairing uh, diesel and petrol cars uh, and a lot of them don't know anything about electric cars Well I thought what was really good about yesterday's intervention was somebody like Patricia King um, very bright woman very practical but, but somebody who put her hands up and said look you know the science of this is not my space um, but, but she understands the practical stuff and that's where the job, I think, of our committee and of politicians generally is to start moving the debate about climate change away from just talking about the environmental hazards and just talking about the science of it. That's now widely accepted. So then you've got to get into the day-to-day stuff. And one of them talked about it yesterday, about the necessity, Mary Donnelly, actually, who's chair of the Climate Advisory Committee, the necessity for politicians to show leadership. And here's the, here's the kind of example that you talk about. Mm. Yes, of course, it's about, once you talk about it at committee, it then permeates its way out into the community. You and I are talking about it today. I am sure there are other media organisations talking about it. 
while we're talking about it, you're going to have garages and mechanics sort of saying, yeah, you're right, you know, maybe I should go and get that bit of training. Maybe I should engage with um, a course on the next wave of, 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 of change in, 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 in the automobile sector. It's going to be a requirement of universities, technical colleges of which we have many around the country that will start to train um, the next wave of, uh, of, of, of motor mechanics. But that is happening. Where we will need the real help is getting people to accept change that they mightn't like. Mm. Um, and that's really going to be... And you see, for some people... Have, have kind of sort of said, well, climate change, maybe that's good, good weather, mm. flooding doesn't affect me, to hell with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, where yeah. it is impacting is, if we're having, you know, relatively minor to moderate changes in our weather, look at what's happening in other parts of the world. Now, some people don't care about what happens in the other part of the world, but mm. it has an impact on the supply. Of well, the even if they don't, the they, might, they might like to go to Disneyland, but Florida might be in the sea. Might uh, be in the yeah, sea, but yeah, it's yeah, even, yeah. It's, and, and, and it's greater than that. It's not mm. just about the visitation. It's having very significant we- changes in weather. Mm. You end up with um, increased starvation in parts of sub-Saharan Africa where the desert continues to encroach onto arable land. Mm. That moves people from, uh, you know, it creates this migration effect. Which millions of refugees, yes. Yeah, millions mm. of refugees puts greater mm. pressure on, 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 uh, on Europe and what we might consider the developed world, whereas our strategies and our policies here before have been to try to encourage people to remain in their countries, provide them with funding from within our resources to help them to live um, a, a life of some quality within their own lands. That's not going to happen if the temperature continues to rise. So we, you're going to have that shift yeah. northwards. And that puts huge huge pressure. So people need to be, be cognizant uh, and mindful of but, the social... But you're back into the science there, there, of course. Uh, so what, what about the actions and how do we do it fairly? Uh, I, I mean, is there any point in, in making it more expensive for the rest of us uh, to uh, continue to destroy the planet if we don't have, if we if we don't have any option. You're talking about decisions that we don't like. There's certain things that we can't do. We can't retrofit our houses. We can't afford it. We can't buy an electric car. We can't afford it, etc., etc., etc. Yeah, but it's easy, you see, to say we can't afford it. There are lots of people who can't afford it, and they need help and assistance. And the government needs to develop a program. But there's an awful lot of people that can. I'm taken, I have to say, I'm taken aback at, and I don't want to be insulting of anybody, but I'm taken aback at the number of heavy-duty 4x4 um, vehicles that are purchased every year Mm. in urban areas that are never used to their manufacturer's potential. Mm. They don't do perhaps any more than 11 or 12,000 kilometres a year, maybe less, um, they're grossly oversized and overpowered for what they're used for. Their lifestyle choices, and there are people, there are plenty of people in society who are very well off and can afford them. But the truth of it is, they're hugely damaging to the environment. Yeah. And 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 so so you you can you can use it you can use the notion that people certain people can't afford. Yeah, well, people would feel that they're safe as, as well. Para- you know, as a means of paralysis. People would feel that they're safe because they're big bulky vehicles well, but they're, but, that, but, they're, but they're also they're also good at bad weather conditions they're and they and they, and, and sorry just the, the last point on that they will tell you as well that they remember when John Gormley was the minister for the environment and he told people to go out and buy diesel cars. Yeah, and, 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 but again, the science at the time, and that's what I've said, mm. things have changed mm. very significantly. 
the decision at the time to move away from petrol towards diesel was that petrol emits much more carbon, which has much greater impact on environmental change. However, mm-hmm. diesel um, has an impact in terms of the, the what's referred to as the NOx and SOx gases, yeah. which puts particle matters into the air, which, which isn't as harmful to the climate change uh, agenda, but is more harmful in terms of uh, the effects on your okay. on your breathing. But and you, your you, you make you, you make you make very good arguments. But what do you say to somebody who has a ten year old diesel four by four who can't afford to get an electric car? Well, you know, it's not about it's not about that person. They're going to have to wait. I suspect because they're probably not in a position to buy a new car. Yeah, but how much oh, are they going to be paying for oh, diesel oh, in the meantime? For the, for the, well, diesel has gone up very significantly as a, as a result of market changes. The, the the increase, you know, which was brought in as a result of the carbon tax, was relatively relatively minor by comparisons to the overall change. What we do need to do, though, is get a supply and get the mindset changed amongst people who can afford, who can use, and for whom range anxiety is not an issue. And, you know, we, we can't use the, the, the notion that because there are some people who just can't change right now, and there are many, and there are people for whom an electric car isn't an option from a cost point the of majority view, perhaps. from a range. Well, I, I, I would argue differently, because okay. I think if you look at the fleet of cars that do relatively small amounts of travel every year, and those cars mm. are now quite inexpensive. You know, I, I, I don't have the list of cars, but mm. I saw... In who's going to who's gonna buy them, though? I mean, if you're asking people oh, to sell their cars to buy a new electric car, who's going to buy the ones that you're telling them to get rid of? You take, you take an example, uh, uh, and I'm not just plugging my, 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 my party colleague, but, mm. but Thomas Byrne, Minister for European Affairs, has been driving a Nissan Leaf, or they have a Nissan Leaf as part of their family mix for the last... He, he's the person that I know that, that bought one the first. He was the first one of my kind of friends that bought one. And he's he done that for seven or eight years. And, and I don't think he has ever had a bad experience. It was a little bit more expensive at the time. But now in this and leaf, mm. is, I think about with the grants and all that, it's about 28,000. Now, there's a, and, and there's, there's a number of other cars, I think, something perhaps maybe 10 uh, electric cars that are between 28 and 32,000. Now, that's an awful lot of money. Okay, but are you talking about a scrappage scheme or who's going to buy no, your old 4x4? Four four? Well, in many cases, well, th- there's still a market for those because there are people who are still buying. <laughs> but I thought you were trying to get rid of the market. No, but, but, I, but, but I am because what I'm trying to do, or what I think we all should be trying to do, is get more new cars into the market and instead of buying a petrol or a diesel new car, that those that can afford it look at buying a new uh, electric vehicle, mm. if it meets their needs. Okay. And there are very many people for whom it, it is a fit and it's within their price range. So you, you're not going to change it all overnight. We're trying to do this over 10 years. And I think we can be successful if more and more people who uh, know that their, their, their annual mileage or their weekly mileage or the daily mileage is relatively low, uh, and you couple that with they're being able to finance it and, and, and pay for it. And okay. don't forget that a car at 28000 for those that cannot... Look, I speak as somebody who never bought a new car, was okay. never in a position to buy a new car, but the, the, there are many people in my community that have done. And what You'll I have to forgive me for cutting you off, but we have to go to headlines and I've run over time. But I think, uh, like, like as is always the case with this topic, we could talk forever about it. Uh, it's a, a big challenge uh, for all of us. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Senator Timmy Dooley, who's uh, a member of the Oireachtas Committee on the Environment and Climate Action. 
Now, as you know, Lisa Smith uh, from uh, Dundalk, a former member of uh, the Defence Forces, faces uh, charges of uh, being a member of Islamic State, ISIS, and of financing terrorism. Uh, She appeared uh, at court yesterday. Let's hear from our court's correspondent, Frank Greeny, who's on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, There was to be a pre-trial application, uh, but that will be held next Monday now. Tell us what happened yesterday, if you would, Frank. That's right, Michael, and good morning to you and your listeners. So Lisa Smith's trial was actually set down to get underway this week. It's expected to take 12 weeks, and it was listed before the non-jury special criminal court yesterday. But when the judges entered the courtroom, her defence barrister, Mr Michael O'Higgins, informed them that he would be moving um, what is a Section 4E application. This is under the Criminal Procedure Act of 1967 and what that means to you and I is basically he's going to argue the point that uh, the charges against uh, his client, Ms Smith, and again you mentioned him at the top of the piece, she's accused of of being a member of ISIS and she is also facing a charge of financing terrorism and that relates to an allegation uh, that she transferred €800 uh, to a named man on a date in 2015, and she's alleged to have been a member of ISIS uh, between 2015 and late 2019. And uh, he's basically applying to have those charges dropped. Now, I can't go into too much of the detail of what was said in court yesterday, because a date has now been set down for this application to be heard next Monday. Um, But essentially, the argument that he is going to make and the argument that he will have to successfully make if these charges are to be dismissed is that the prosecution hasn't presented or won't be presenting sufficient evidence uh, in the case uh, to justify um, the, the case going ahead at all. Uh, his argument will be that the evidence isn't sufficient enough and that any conviction that may uh, follow would therefore be unsafe. Clearly the prosecution mm-hmm. is objecting to that argument um, but it will all be thrashed out uh, next week. So. The trial was, as I said, supposed to get underway this week. Yeah. There have been a few delays along the way. And for 12 weeks, you said, uh, around three months, would that be uh, unusually long for a trial of uh, this sort? Well, these types of, of, of cases are, are very rare um, to come before. Certainly the, the allegations um, that have been made against Lisa Smith um, are very rare to come before the Special Criminal Court. Um, but... The fact that it's a 12-week trial, I suppose, just goes to show the complexity of the case. It's a very document-heavy case uh, as well, and we've heard this previously, thousands and thousands of pages of documents that have been presented to the defence. And indeed, uh, Mr O'Higgins did inform the court yesterday that just a few days before court, they did get some additional evidence, some 1,200 pages of additional evidence that he and his team had to go through uh, over the Christmas uh, break. Um, But before anything begins and before the trial opens and um, obviously given the nature of the application that is being brought next week that will have to be heard first and mm. um, it's hard to tell how long it's going to take for Mr O'Higgins to bring that application on Monday and obviously the prosecuting barrister Sean Galan will then be given an opportunity uh, to address uh, the court and he did say to Mr Justice Tony Hunt the presiding judge of this three-judge panel yesterday he did say that he would um, like to present the court with some additional material as part of of that application. So, again, mm. you know, if if Mr O'Higgins is successful and the charges 
are, are dropped against his client, well, then that's that. Yeah. Um, but obviously, if he fails in an attempt to have the charges dropped, then the trial, you would expect, will begin at some stage next week. And, and again, as you say, that will yeah. take a very long time. Tell us uh, about Lisa Smith. Uh, what's her situation at uh, the moment? Uh, I think a, a lot of us would have uh, seen her on TV last night. Uh, she looked well under the circumstances anyway. Uh, seemed to be dressed differently than the last time we saw her. But uh, she's at liberty, isn't she? Is she on bail or what's the situation there, Frank? Uh, she is on bail. Um, she's still on bail. Uh, she she did spend a time in custody um, when she was arrested after returning from Turkey. Uh, she was arrested at Dublin Airport after returning from, from Turkey in uh, late 2019. And she was uh, in custody for a time. But uh, she is on bail. She did apply and was successful in getting bail. And, um, and that order, uh, she was remanded on continuing bail yesterday. Uh, in your weather report earlier, you did mm. mention that it's a a chilly day and it was a chilly day in Dublin yesterday and Lisa Smith was very well wrapped up um, both outside the courtroom and inside the courtroom. She was wearing a woolly hat, she had gloves on, she had a black face covering as well and she was sitting in the body of the court. She wasn't required to sit in the dock yesterday while um, Mr O'Higgins, I suppose, was updating the court on his position. Um, And this didn't take very long. The court did rise for a time and Mr Justice Tony Hunt did express some frustration with the application being brought in the manner in which it was brought yesterday because I'm, I've taken a look at the legislation today and it does provide for the for the prosecution to be given at least 14 days notice of an application at this type to be brought. And that wasn't met. Uh, 14 days notice hasn't been given to the prosecution. But the prosecutor, Mr Galland, didn't um, express any objection in it going ahead in that sense. And, and the court did agree to hear it. Uh, again next week so it didn't take very long the judges did rise for a time to see if they would consider it you know Mr O'Higgins wouldn't have had an automatic uh, right to have that application heard but the judges did come back a few minutes later and said look we will hear it Um, and they're very eager to get this case on if it is to go on Um, and the reason for that is as you say this is going to take 12 weeks so it's going to take up an awful lot of time for what is a very busy court there are obviously trials um, that will come after Lisa Smith's trial and they will be affected by any delay in proceedings. But Mr O'Higgins said uh, yesterday, look, if, if he's not successful, he doesn't envisage that the timeline is going to be greatly affected if the trial is a little bit late uh, getting on. So okay. Lisa Smith was there for these proceedings yesterday. Um, she didn't address the court at all uh, and she left shortly after a consultation with Mr Higgins and her legal team. Frank, thanks very much for that. Frank Graney, our courts correspondent. Now let's uh, return to politics. Sinn Féin, I gather, are expected to be in government. I think most people would expect them to be part of the next government and I think most people would be of that view because of the opinion polls and perhaps That's because of how Sinn Féin dominates social media. Uh, Let's talk to Damien Mully, who's uh, the director of Mully Communications, who's been looking at political activity across uh, the internet. And a very good morning to you, Damien, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. I think you're making the point that there's not much difference uh, between how Sinn Féin is dominating the internet now and how it was dominating uh, social media uh, at uh, the time of the general election, but uh, they really are way ahead of all of the other political parties in this country in terms of using the internet. Yeah, good morning, Michael. So, yeah, they, um, they have the biggest following across all social media compared to all the other parties in Ireland. Um, but even though their numbers haven't gone up much since the, the last general election, which is the same for all political parties, 
their engagement anytime they do anything online is sky high. So, for example, their their Facebook page, which has um, 268,000 people following it, they had 28,000 engagements in the past 30 days. Um, and if you compare that to Fine Gael, Fine Gael had 2,500 engagements. So even when they post something, there's far more engagement and more sharing of their posts and their numbers then as a result are, are huge. Mm. And so they, they've been consistent before the election and after the election. They've, they've kept on going. Yeah, and it's odd uh, because after Sinn Féin, uh, the biggest party on Facebook is uh, the Labour Party, uh, which is just under 60,000, uh, but none of the other parties reaching 50,000 and Sinn Féin on 268,000. There's a, a stark difference between them. There is. I mean... Sinn Féin, in effect, has more followers or more people uh, liking their page on Facebook than all the other political parties combined. So it's not just a small gap, it's a, mm. it's a massive gap. And one of the things is Sinn Féin have been on Facebook from the early days, and as a result, their numbers have been growing consistently, and that's the same with the, the Irish Labour Party as well. They've been there mm. for maybe the past 10 years, and so the, I guess the, the head start there has them as well. And you might think it's old school, new school uh, uh, approach, uh, but it's not that simple, is it? Uh, because uh, this gets quite complicated when you dig in a, a bit deeper and look at some of the individuals like Simon Harris or Michal Martin, the Taoiseach, uh, but in particular Leo Varadkar, the Taunashta. Yeah, it's, it's almost um, kind of a, if you're looking at his numbers, were he a political party by himself, and some people might say he is, he actually has more followers. He has 720,000 followers across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Wow. Um, Mary Lou MacDonald has 370,000 followers across Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, and one of the reasons was when Leo Radkar became leader of Fine Gael and Taoiseach, his numbers internationally grew as well. Um, and he had a, a very strong profile internationally as well as nationally. Mm. And so his, his Twitter numbers are, um, they're actually at 432,000, which is yeah. massively high. That's a, a lot of influence, isn't it? Uh, there's some people who live off uh, the internet, who make a living on the internet, influencers uh, uh, and so on. Uh, do any of the politicians get paid uh, for the uh, audiences that they generate? Not yet, anyway. Maybe when they retire, they can start selling quite new products. Okay, very good. It's very interesting. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the program this morning, Damien Mully, director of Mully Communications. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, as we've been discussing already this morning, uh, the government has said to make some very big decisions in terms of COVID restrictions. Let's hear a little bit more uh, about this. Independent TD for Louth and East Meath, Peter Fitzpatrick, joins us. A very good morning to you and thanks indeed for taking the time to be with us on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I'm sure like all of us, uh, you're hearing reports uh, that uh, if you've been boosted and you don't have symptoms, you won't have to self-isolate if you're a close contact. What do you make of that? Well, Michael, if you have a look, Michael, uh, like over 3.8 million people is, is fully vaccinated and 2.4 million is at first of vaccination. I think the people of Ireland has done a fantastic job over the last two years under strict restrictions. And uh, at the moment, uh, I think that the, the most important thing is I think, uh, Dr Tony Hulhan has given a letter to uh, Stephen Donnelly on the 6th of January and uh, what, he's, what they're basically doing is, 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 is maybe giving rewards back to people who have uh, got the vaccination. Like, for example, at the moment, is, uh, 
uh, I think I walked through the dock there yesterday afternoon, and uh, Michael, you wouldn't just walk through it. I'm sure it's the same in Jordan and other towns in the city there. Is the amount of businesses that hasn't reopened since Christmas is unreal. Uh, businesses are struggling big time. I even heard yesterday that the pharmaceutical companies' production lines are down 50%. Uh, if, if you look at their last year, the, 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 you listen to Pascal, I don't know who saying that we record uh, money taken in last year and taxes and everything else at the moment. So I, I think basically what they're doing is they're having a look. Uh, this country has done a lot of good. So, but, the, but the most important thing, Michael, is we have to make sure that the, the safe and health-being of, of people are being looked after. Yeah. I, think, I, think, I, think, I think the government are doing a sensible thing there at the moment is I know over Christmas the amount of phone calls I got from people who couldn't get a PCR test and they were up until 12 o'clock at night time and 6 o'clock in the morning trying to get PCR tests and everything mm. else. And also the report there last week was very frightening too. There may be up as far as 500,000 people in Maryland had the coronavirus there last week. Well, that's exactly what the uh, CMO said and that's uh, 400 and, uh, or that's 49,000, I beg your pardon, that's... Uh, 70,000 cases a, a day would give you 490,000 so that's uh, 70,000 at least 70,000 cases every single day hey, Michael that, to me that is really really frightening there at the moment mm. is. and the problem there at the moment is the, the only good thing is, if you look at last, this time last year we had approximately about 6,000 people a day getting the coronavirus and in fairness the hospitals were on a severe pressure last year compared to this year and uh, I was just listening to you one the lady there last night uh uh, Anne O'Connor, who's the Chief Operation Officer in the HSE, she was saying at present that there'll be 17,000 staff out at the moment in the HSE. Mm. And she maintains this, that this new restrictions come in, uh, that, that that will cut that down to half. And I, I'm, I'm listening to people in, in, in my own area at the moment is that the operations at the moment have been, yeah. I don't they need to be failed. Well, if you have 500,000 people in a week and uh, they each have uh, 10 close contacts, you're suddenly talking about the whole population. That's 5 million. So undoubtedly something has to be done. But as you say, it's getting the balance between doing it safely uh, and getting people back to work. It's not easy and it's a big decision, isn't it? Yes, Michael. Also, I'm not saying it's not. When you look at the, the teachers there at the moment is, like uh, I, I heard yesterday, meeting yesterday in the newspapers, that uh, one of the trade unions was saying that, that that when does the actual isolation start? Does it start from the day that you contact the HSE, or do you start from the day that they get the you know result back? So to me, that that's that's something that they need a lot of clarity at the moment. Is mm. as far as I was concerned, and most people were concerned was that when you get the symptoms, that's when it started. But listen, I'm very surprised. Like that's one in every five teachers since maybe November yeah. has been missing school. That's an awful lot there at the moment. Is. But my main concern at the moment is, especially talking to older people there at the moment, is uh, they, they set us in clothes, uh, respite, like how to get respite. They were even talking about disability services then by 30%, and now all of a sudden the ambulance services. So we're going to have to sit down and listen, either we're doing it right, we're doing it wrong. Do we listen to scientific uh, advice? I think Dr. Hulahin and I have sat down and he's given a letter to Minister Donnelly. So I think it's very important that between, the, between Netflix, uh, the Dr. Hulahin, the government, a decision has to be made. And I believe that decision will be made today. But we just need a bit of clarity too. And I'm also hearing that, that Stephen Donnelly came back there yesterday and said that these new restrictions yeah. might only go up as far as the age of 39. So we just need to get everything out there. You know, people okay, need to know but, what's happening. But 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 if uh, we're talking about uh, people not needing to isolate, uh, does that mean all people, or uh, do hairdressers need to go to work, or people working in fashion and retail in a shoe shop need to go to work the same way? Uh, a nurse or a paramedic or a fireman or a guard needs to go to work, uh, and whether you're a hairdresser or a fireman. 
uh, if you go to work and you're close contact, should you also go to the pub and the cinema? Well, Michael, this this is what probably needs to come in there at the moment. Is, and, and in fairness, I think I think the restrictions over the last month or so has been very very good. Uh, I think most people has obeyed by them. Mm. Uh, this Omicron variant is, 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 seems to be very rapid, and 96% of the population that that's that's what they have there at the moment. Mm. But I'm just going to say, Michael, is, uh, I think Michael that uh, if the government and the scientific says that you're safe. That that uh, if you've got a double vaccination and you've got a booster, or you've got a du- double vaccination and you already have got the corona uh, nineteen virus, mm. that you, you should be safe to go back. Then people should be safe to go back, whether it's to the health service, whether it's teaching, whether it's what is back into. Uh, well, it's lesser of two evils, isn't it? I'm not sure that anybody is saying you're safe uh, because I mean we talk about five hundred thousand people catching coronavirus last week, uh, and some of them are going to get sick undoubtedly. Oh, without a doubt, Michael, at the moment, mm. is, uh, like, I have people, even my, my consistency office, and even asking us as TDs, do I have the coronavirus? And like, you know, they, uh, we, we just try to tell them like, the, the most common symptoms is if you get a, if you get a fever or cough mm. or if you're mm. tired. But, but, but we're no experts there at the moment. Is, but if, if, if you do the antigen test and you're, you're positive, then you go looking for a PCO test. Now, I, I know a lot of people might criticise the HSE. And they're going to stop like that. Uh, if you have a positive antigen test, you won't have to do a PCR test. And we were talking about that earlier in the programme. Uh, if you don't uh, have to do a PCR test, uh, there's no way of proving that you had COVID. Uh, but if you claim that you have COVID, you'll be able to get a, a COVID cert. Uh, and that will make the COVID certs irrelevant and redundant, really, won't it? And in fairness, Michael Owen, Michael Owen, Michael, because you, you, you always get people who, who break the system there at the moment. Is, and I, I keep telling you, what, what really, really does annoy me there at the moment is, if, if, you, if you look at, at the hospital situation there at the moment is, like, uh, like 60% of the people in ICU hasn't uh, taken the vaccination. And to me, that, that's totally and utterly wrong. I, I'm not in here to, to force people to take it and everything else at the moment is, but uh, it's very important that we look after the staff. Like, if you look mm. at the HSE teachers and everything else, we do have to look after them there as well. And so I, I just think, you know, there's something seriously wrong. Like, and I would be encouraging people in the area, or, 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 you know, please, 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 if, if you don't think about yourself, think about your children, think about, you know, your family, yeah. think about other people there at the moment. Is. Because when you see a, a, a large amount of people in the ICU that hasn't got vaccinated, that's telling you something like in itself. Yeah, well, of course. Uh, it seems as though we're throwing our hands up uh, to some degree and saying we just can't beat this uh, that we need to let it rip first of all we, we definitely definitely need to go back to some kind of normality and we and we do we do depend on, on the head experts and so far over the last number of months they've been doing a pretty good job there at the moment is and the good thing there at the moment is uh, uh this 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 uh, uh omicron variant doesn't seem to be as bad as the last two before that there at the moment is but yet again you have to look after your health and well-being I'm just going to say to you, uh, I, I heard it on the radio session this morning that they're encouraging people to wear this FFP2 white mask. Yes. And, it, 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 and if that does help, and the blue, if that does help, I'm just going to say, I think it's about time now that the government started to give out these masks free of charge to encourage people there at the moment. Because prevention is the best cure there at the moment. Is. And uh, I, 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 you know, I, I think the government should sit there and, and, and invest over the next month or two months and encourage people to wear these, these FFP2 masks. And I think, you know, I think to me, a good investment would be to, to give these masks to people free of charge. OK, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's Independent TD for Loud and East Meath, Peter Fitzpatrick. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, COVID has been putting pressure on uh, the health service, in particular on uh, hospital services over the course of uh, the last two years. And the solution to the influx of patients has been to cancel other work that normally would be carried out in hospital. But the Irish Hospital Consultants Association says uh, that there is a continuous commentary about the health service being under pressure. But other than short-term unsustainable solutions like cancelling scheduled essential care, there is not enough being done to make our public hospital services more resilient. Let's uh, speak uh, to the Secretary-General of the IHCA, Martin Farley, who's on the the line. Good morning to you, Martin. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, And we've uh, some experience of this at this stage, uh, and it's not unusual to hear that Uh, elective procedures have to be cancelled and so on but you're saying that something needs to be done we need to step back from this and take a look at uh, the bigger picture because there's a million people who are currently waiting to see a hospital consultant or receive treatment across the country as we speak yeah absolutely i think uh, we all are well aware of the fact that COVID as a pandemic was something that would be very very difficult to prepare for fully Uh, but we, we should have been in a better position than we were uh, if we had invested in our public hospitals over the f- previous decade, um, we would have known that was essential because our population was expanding, etc. So now we're saying there's an opportunity to steer our way out of this crisis uh, towards what would be a fit-for-purpose public hospital system. But that has to be based on proper resources and plans and budgets. And we need to start uh, this year with the 2022 uh, National Service Plan for our public hospitals. So that will require a clear strong commitment from our politicians and a will and a commitment to deliver on it. Otherwise, we'll see our public hospitals taking the same old route back into crisis mode again and again, especially in the winter months, but also if we have successive waves of uh, virus such as COVID or otherwise. Okay, that's the big, broad service plan. For what the HSE hopes to do in hospitals across the course of the 12 months of the year 2022. That hasn't been published yet. It would normally be published towards the end of the previous year, would it not? It would normally be published prior to the Christmas break. I think last year and this year obviously are exceptional. However, we understand the plan has been prepared. Uh, Publishing it is very important because it tells the hospitals what the resources will be. But more importantly still, if we are to expand our capacity, uh, we need to have that information out there. Uh, and we absolutely need to expand our inpatient uh, day case bed capacity and our ICU bed capacity. Some efforts have been made to do so since the pandemic started in February, March of 2020. Uh, we would have seen extra beds being brought on stream of the order of 1,000. But in reality, we need much more than that. And more than that, and we, we are not seeing that. We're not seeing a commitment uh, to expand our beds further, and that's a worry and a concern because we have very, very low waiting lists of up to a million people. We have uh, large numbers of patients on trolleys, as we speak, about 400 a day across the hospital system countrywide. And, of course, those two things together are clear statements of capacity deficits. Uh, nobody wants a situation whereby... Patients are being told your procedures are being cancelled. Nobody wants a situation where by 400 or more patients are on trolleys uh, day in, day out. Uh, these are patients who are admitted to hospitals mm. who need urgent treatment. 
Yeah, and uh, statistics are one thing, but nobody wants to be one of the people on those trolleys. Uh, tell me a little bit more about uh, the ICU bed situation because uh, there's uh, this nightmare that people are hoping to avoid uh, since COVID, which is uh, that you'd have more people in need of critical care than you would have critical care beds and that doctors would have to decide uh, you uh, are more worthy of an ICU bed than you for whatever reasons or whatever criteria that decision would be based on. It's not something that anybody would want to have to contemplate doing. I think it happened in Italy at the beginning uh, of the pandemic. Uh, but do we need more ICU beds because of COVID or do we just need more ICU beds? Uh, we just need more ICU beds. We have about half the number of ICU beds uh, on a population basis compared with the EU average. In fact, over a decade ago, the government and the HSE and the department commissioned a review of our ICU bed capacity and concluded then that we need to double the number of beds, uh, ICU beds we have. Despite the fact that the population has gone up by 10% since then, we really haven't done anything like doubling. And in fact, on a population basis today, we have fewer ICU beds than we had a decade ago. Now, that puts it in in stark reality that we don't have enough ICU beds at half the EU average. So we need to double it up to about 640. Currently, we have about 300. The number has expanded somewhat since two years ago, since the start of the pandemic. Uh, But we're we're just effectively playing catch-up. So playing catch-up means two things. Number one, in a COVID crisis, uh, you, you run the risk of not having enough ICU beds. Fortunately, we haven't been in that situation, although we were very close to it at one stage, and additional ICU capacity would be put into other parts of the hospitals. So that's improvised expansion. It's not something you can maintain. Uh, what we need is, is real expansion on a sustainable basis, or otherwise what you end up finding is that when you have a pandemic or increased surge in the hospitals, you start to cancel surgical care, which is essential and necessary and that's what we're seeing again now, the cancellations of uh, what's called elective care. Elective care is just essential surgery that you schedule. Mm-hmm. It isn't something that's discretionary. The patient is in pain, the patient needs it, the patient condition will not improve without it. So cancelling that type of care is not good for patients. It could be problem. removing a tumour, for example. It could be, and it could be diagnostic-related mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. diagnose mm-hmm. how serious the problem is or not. So the whole multitude of treatments that require uh, backup services and obviously serious surgery in particular requires the ICU critical care. It's backup. just that it's just that the surgery, the operation uh, isn't carried out in an emergency situation. You plan for it uh, and you plan uh, to do uh, whatever is needed uh, for the person. But am I right in thinking that the consultants, the Irish Hospital Consultants Association is saying that There are so many problems that you're talking about a a perfect storm, a perfect storm that was there before the pandemic and that COVID is just compounding all of these problems because you're talking about capacity in inpatient day cases, you're talking about problems with staffing levels uh, and you're also talking uh, about uh, the amount of people who are waiting to see a consultant. Yes, absolutely. It all comes down to capacity deficit in terms of the beds and the infrastructure in our hospitals and secondly, the staff, the frontline staff, who require to deliver the service in a timely manner. And with a million people nationally on waiting lists, it does speak volumes as to the scale of the capacity deficits in our public hospitals. Um, that means our public hospitals are seriously overstretched at the best of times and in crisis mode 
when you have something like a pandemic. That's a very difficult situation for staff to be in. They want to deliver timely care. It's easier to deliver timely care. It's better outcomes for the patients. But for example, in the northeast of the country, uh, your own area included, about 25% of the permanent consultant posts are not filled on that basis. Some are filled on a temporary basis, some are vacant. And we are we already know that we have something like 40% fewer consultants on a population-adjusted basis compared with the rest of Europe. So having a quarter of the posts, permanent posts, uh, not filled accordingly, uh, again, creates another stress factor uh, in terms of trying to deliver timely care to patients. There's a, a lot of catching up to do, isn't there? Uh, h- how much catching up is there to do? And is this work that should have started 20 years ago? And if that's the case, uh, how quickly can we catch up? Well, certainly it's work that should have started a decade ago. And how quickly can we catch up? Well, of course, you you can catch up and you can do the, do the necessary but you need to plan it and you need to implement it. And to implement it, you need to resource it. Um, that's why we're calling for the 2022 National Service Plan to be published, because that's one-year demonstration of what's planned in this year in terms of capacity expansion and how you're going to deliver the service day-to-day. Mm. The other big uh, capacity expansion piece is the National uh, Development Plan, uh, which should provide the funding for the additional beds Unfortunately, it was reviewed in October last year and it hasn't gone far enough in our view in terms of expanding the bed capacity. It's more or less left it at where it was in terms of an additional 2,600 acute hospital beds, which was published back in 2018. We know since then, of course, with ample evidence that an additional 2,600 beds won't be enough. We knew it then. It's been proven since. Uh, so we need to have that updated as well. And we're calling for a much more significant expansion in our acute hospital beds as well mm-hmm. as our ICU beds. Well, you're calling for the 640 ICU beds that you spoke about and 6,000 uh, additional public hospital beds. Uh, it's easy enough to deliver 6,000 beds. Uh, I'm not sure where you put them, uh, but uh, the beds themselves aren't a, a problem. But the biggest problem really is staffing them because you'd be talking about, what, about 18,000 new recruits if you were to have 6,000 new beds? Well, certainly you're talking about a substantial expansion in our staffing, as I said, in our consultant ranks. We're 40% below the EU average. If you bring more beds on stream, you need staff, frontline staff, nursing staff, uh, other allied health professional staff to deliver the care. But that's what's required to deliver a, a, a care in a developed economy. If you want to have a public hospital system that will deliver timely care to patients, you need the basics. You need the basic infrastructure, you need the basic capacity, including staff. Otherwise, the the country's public hospital and public health service is built on unsure foundations and it can't be delivered. So we have to be realistic about this and ask ourselves, what do we need? And comparing ourselves with other countries, we know there are significant deficits in our public hospitals. Okay. Well, we all want... uh health service that delivers uh, even if we don't know it yet uh, but if we find ourselves in uh, the system and there are those type of deficits deficits that you're talking about uh, we'll soon realise that that's what uh, is in our interest. We live there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Martin Farley is uh, the Secretary General of the IHCA, the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. 
Two years ago today, a 17-year-old boy disappeared in Drogheda. Keen Mulready Wood's name uh, is known to many of us, uh, and he was last seen on uh, the 12th of January 2020. His murder has uh, disturbed uh, people far and wide, but in particular locally, uh, and indeed brought about... A call for an end to what had been an ongoing feud between two drugs gangs in the Drogheda area. The investigation into the murder of Kemal Reedy Woods uh, continues and we're joined uh, this morning by Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan. Uh, very good morning to you, Chief Superintendent, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. It was a particularly horrific murder a particularly awful act uh, and the investigation continues. What are your thoughts uh, this morning, two years on from uh, the disappearance and horrible murder of such a young boy? Uh, Yes, good morning, Michael. Yeah, it certainly was a a most grotesque murder, uh, which I think um, in the days after the murder, it, it probably brought a reality check to a large number of people, not alone, you know, people involved in, in the drugs trade, but also the ordinary decent people who go about their their, their, um, their daily business uh, to know that a child had been had been murdered, uh, you know, in Drogheda. And uh, it certainly was, uh, you know, it, it, it resulted in a huge change in the attitude of people. I think people realised that this was a boundary that had, you know, been crossed and shouldn't, should never have been crossed. And obviously, the huge trauma for King's family. And uh, look, at we have a trial, which obviously I, I can't discuss. We have a number of trials coming up, but uh, the investigation has progressed. Uh, a huge amount of sadness for an awful amount of people uh, that that knew King and. Um, it has been a, a long, difficult investigation, but there's good progress has been made to date, uh, thankfully. And I suppose overall, since the dispute that broke out, and it, it was a criminal dispute, this is not where people fall out outside a pub over something simple. This is where people have fallen out over who had the right to control uh, the cocaine supply uh, in the main in Drogheda and since the start of, of the dispute we, we've arrested over 300 people uh, who have been involved in, in the sale and supply of drugs and I suppose you know, that, that equates to 20 teams that you could put out on a, on a pitch, 15 uh, on each team uh, it's, it's, a, it's a huge amount of people in, in, a, in a town who are involved in, 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 uh, in illegal drug supply mm, It's a colossal resource uh, if there was to be anything good uh, to come from uh, the killing of Keane Mulready Woods, uh, would you say it was a, a game changer? Did it change the mindsets of people? Did you find that the community opened up more to the police force, uh, that people were more willing to come forward and give information to on Garda Síochána? I, I, th- I think it did. I think there was a reality check by a number of people who, who you know, who probably didn't want to be involved in, in any of this uh, uh, carry-on, you know, like illegal drug dealing. But we, we've got fantastic cooperation from the public. And I think on a national stage, uh, you know, the drug, the supply of drugs is very strong in this country. It's very strong, not alone in Drogheda, it's very strong all over the, the, the country. So 
Drogheda is reflective of the country, unfortunately. The only difference here is that they decided to go to war in the street. And then there was, you know, Keane and, and a lot of other people, uh, unfortunately, were, were caught up in it. Mm. And uh, a, lot, a lot of decent people were, you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, impacted by it as a result of what criminals were at because they were targeting families, you know, their sons or daughters owed money. They targeted the, the houses, uh, you know, threatened them, uh, seeking out, you know, some, some people may have owed maybe 1,500 euros. And then with the compound interest that drug dealers apply, they end up on 30,000. And, uh, you know, there still is an element of it today, but I think definitely the people of Drogheda uh, came together and uh, we saw what happened on the, the march on the, the Bridge of Peace. And I think politically, uh, also with the, the Gearing report, uh, there is a will there to put a plan in place for the future to make sure that this never happens again. You know, I mean, I, I, this morning I was down the town and I saw kids going to school. I mean, we're responsible for those children's futures. Uh, you know, that in 20 years' time they're not looking back and saying, well, what the hell were those people at in 2022? So, you know, I think there's good plans put in place um, for the future uh, to make sure that this doesn't happen, but also to make sure it doesn't happen in any other town in, in, in Ireland. That's it. The yeah. Is there. Yeah. Well, we all remember the killings, not just uh, that of yeah. Keemal Reedy Woods, uh, the attempted killings, uh, the arson attacks, the petrol bombs, uh, the beating up of uh, people, uh, and so on. Uh, but uh, there was an, an awful lot more to it. Uh, people will remember the sense of fear and the sense of uh, being... Uh, under attack personally and uh, that the town had been hijacked by these gangs, the Garda helicopter was commonplace. Uh, people will sort of have the feeling that uh, a woman would have felt the breeze of a, a bullet as it, it passed by. It was so close to her. People will have known of children in primary school uh, playing out uh, the two gangs, one on the either side type of, of thing and so forth. And there was uh, this mood, certainly a couple of years ago, to reclaim the streets, to reclaim our community, to reclaim the town. Yeah, I think there has. I suppose one comment that was made by a mother to me at a meeting one, one evening and uh, she said that the children were afraid to, afraid to play in the street. And, uh, you know, that, that certainly is a, a reality check to me as, as a professional police officer. Uh, how can you preside over a situation <coughs> where, children, excuse me, where mm. children are afraid to go out in, in their local area and uh, play Very a understandable when you hear, uh, as we remember, as we uh, witnessed uh, not too long ago, children playing out uh, in a state at six or seven o'clock in the evening and gunshots being fired at somebody. Uh, it's not over, though, is it? Uh, it's not completely over. At least uh, we've uh, had gunshots fired at a house in the last few weeks. Uh, there's been a few petrol bombs in the last few weeks for that matter. Well, look, at, when you're dealing with the illicit drug trade, um, you know, the, the fight for control is never over. Uh, like, in 2021, we, we arrested 117 people in relation to uh, possession of drugs uh, with intent to supply in excess of 1.4 million seized. And, that, and that's only in Drogheda. That's not in Dundalk. That's not in other, other towns and villages in, in this division. So... In excess of you know 1.4 million uh, euros worth of drugs seized, 
And I suppose you, you, you only have to look, at, you know, I mean, you listen in, in, in general conversation to people, you know, complaining about the fact that um, construction costs have gone up 30 percent, the price of food has gone up uh, X amount, you know, alcohol, going out to restaurants. The one market that has remained very constant in its pricing range is drugs. The price of cocaine hasn't gone up in the last couple of years. What what about supply? Uh, Because we're living through a pandemic. Well, when when you look at the price and it's remaining constant, you know, anybody, you know, (laughs) who knows about business, if the price is remaining static, it means there is a very strong supply. So there is a very strong supply of cocaine, all, all illicit drugs still into this country. You only have to look at the seizures uh, in, you know, Amsterdam, in in, in uh, Spain, and you know, a certain percentage of that, uh, th- those consignments are coming in here as well. So the supply is quite strong. So it, it would lead you to believe that, you know, if we continue, uh, people will continue to have disputes over drugs. Um, as long as we, well, not, it's, it's, it's not something the situation you want to be in, but. We, we can never go back to the level of violence that we suffered then. So we have a detailed plan in place to deal with the violence. But the supply and consumption then is a, a difficulty that exists within society. And, you know, I, I can put out all the stop and search uh, operations uh, in the world and we will get results and, and there, there will be good results, but it will not impact on the consumption to the degree that is needed. So it, it, it actually, like, it, the, the consumption is, is a public health crisis. Mm. That's what it is. And, and ultimately, the criminal justice system can only do so much uh, with people who want to consume drugs. So once the market is, is, is uh, needs to be serviced, and people make very bad choices in their lives, they, they decide to take drugs. And then, you know, from what I have seen, and I spent seven years in the National Drug Unit, it becomes a chronic health problem for the person consuming the drugs. Do you worry and about the dealers, though? Do you uh, worry uh, about things uh, like what Larry Dunn said in Dolphins Bar and Fatima Mansions back in the 80s, that if you think we're bad, wait till you see what's coming behind us. Do you worry that you go from arrest to conviction to sentence, and while that prisoner uh, serves out their time, somebody else is coming up behind them? Look, you'll always have the replacements there to a certain degree. Um, but we need, we, you know, we certainly need a more coordinated approach, particularly in the demand reduction uh, side of it. You know, we engage on a very regular basis with the demand reduction agencies, but their services are curtailed in you know, the fact that they don't have the resources they actually need. Like we, we, we assisted the Family Addiction Support Network in Dundalk there last year, they were in difficulty with funds, so you know we organised a, a 5k fund run in Dundalk, which raised 32,000 to assist them in, in, in maintaining the services to the families. And, and their services are critical because mm. uh, I've had calls from time to time to ring them to say, listen, here we have a family in difficulty, they need uh, support. And this is for the mum or dad, uh, whose son or daughter uh, has got into difficulties. And they, they, they come into a family unit and provide an invaluable service, a service I can't provide. I can deal yeah. with the criminality, I can deal with the violence, I can deal with the mayhem that comes from that, but I don't have the expertise 
to assist the family out of the mire that they're in when they're faced with their son or daughter mm. uh, with a chronic uh, drug addiction. So I, I know from Jackie that was hugely appreciated and will never be forgotten. And congratulations to you uh, and uh, your uh, colleagues for that. Uh, and indeed for all of the work that you've been doing, uh, not just over the last couple of years, but in particular for that and uh, for getting this under control to some extent. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. I have to leave it there. But thanks, as I say, to Chief Superintendent Christy Mangan of the Louth Garda Division. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.